So this passage of scripture that we're going to examine this morning, is that it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Uh, a few years ago, summer of 2014, I had the wonderful opportunity to counsel at a camp up in northern Michigan named Camp Barakel. Uh, and one of the things that Camp Barakel does is they have scripture memory throughout the summer. They, you know, I've been to other camps that will have, they'll pick out random verses that you need to memorize for the summer. But Camp Barakel, they pick out a passage of scripture for you to memorize throughout the summer. And as a counselor, I had to memorize it every single week with all of my campers. And so I really had the opportunity to meditate on this passage of scripture really deeply. I had the opportunity just to let it mull over in my head and in my heart. And I really fell in love with this passage of Scripture. Really had the opportunity to really learn it, to really see it for what it is. And what it is, is really just a simple, beautiful expression of the Gospel. Right? If someone were going to come up to you and say, How can I be saved? Or what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Or what is the gospel? You could open them to this passage of scripture and you could show it to them. You could say, you know, you were dead in your trespasses and you could be made alive through Christ. And it's only by God's grace through faith. This is a perfect synopsis of what God has done for us. And if, if some of you remember, I've actually preached on this passage uh, I believe it was the first time I ever pulpit supplied here. I went through this passage. But since we're going through the book of Ephesians, we can't just skip a passage. So I reworked a little bit, and it's, you know, we're going to hear God's words for us anyway. So if this sounds incredibly familiar, I think that's okay. Uh, but join, join with me as we, as we dive into this passage of Scripture. It begins kind of in a grim place, this passage. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's dark, right? I used to have a dog. I used to have several dogs. And yes, the story is going where you think it's going. I used to have a dog. Her name was Lindy. She was an Australian shepherd. We think she might have been part greyhound because whenever she got out, she would just run. Right? She was you know, dumb as a box of rocks. We would have to keep her on a leash anytime she was anywhere close to being outside. Uh, but she was kind of a skinny, slippery dog, and you would try to hold her in, but if she saw some daylight, she would just go for it. And, you know, all throughout middle school, we would chase Lindy around the neighborhood, uh, and most of the time, we would get her back, no problem. One time, she did not come home. Um, my brother actually had the unfortunate experience of watching her get hit on Wheeler Road in Saginaw, um, I remember distinctly my dad bringing her home. You know, she was, she was still kind of at the end of her life, whimpering. Uh, I brought her home, wrapped up in a towel, set her in the living room. We had the chance to say goodbye to one of my beloved childhood dogs. And then we buried her in the backyard. I saw a dog, yes, go from life to death. Death is a, it's a weird thing, Right? The absence of life. There's a vivacity that's just not there. She's just a shell of what she once was. So what does it mean for us to be spiritually dead? What does it mean for us to have no spiritual life 
at all. According to Paul, this is our natural state. He says, you used to live in this spiritual state. We were not born spiritually alive when we came into this world. Every single one of us used to live in this spiritual state where we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse number five kind of repeats this again, and Paul includes himself there. He said, made us alive with Christ. Spoilers, that's coming. Even when we were dead in transgressions. Even the apostle Paul acknowledges that we were all dead in transgressions. The apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians of all time, perhaps no one has done more to spread the gospel in history than Paul the apostle. Even he says, I used to be dead in transgressions and sins. There was a point in time where Paul didn't do the will of God. And if you remember from when we kind of overviewed this book, Paul used to be, yes, he used to be a zealous Pharisee who read the Bible, memorized the Bible, pursued God as he thought God wanted to be pursued, but he also pursued Christians to persecute them. Paul was a murderer. Paul was someone who would go and arrest Christians and round them up and bring them, bring them in in order to be killed and arrested. That's who Paul was. Paul acknowledges, this great Christian, that even he used to live in transgressions and sins. So this is a universal reality. This is not something that any of us get to escape. None of us in this room get to look back on our past and say, there used to be a time... Or I never lived in transgressions and sins. We, none of us get to say that. We all used to live in transgressions and sins. And being dead in transgressions and sins just means that there's no spiritual life there. Just as, you know, when my beloved childhood dog passed away, I couldn't play with her anymore. She wouldn't respond when I'd scratch her ear. Even so, in the same way that when we are spiritually dead... We cannot commune with God. Someone can be walking around on this earth who has no spiritual life, and they, they look alive, and that you can talk to them, and they sound alive, but in their heart, there's just nothing. Nothing in them wants to go after God. Nothing in them convicts them of their sin. Nothing in them brings them closer to God. They're just spiritually dead. And that was our state before we believed you may remember from a couple weeks ago that we were predestined to adoption, right, before the foundation of the world. So the thought may be going through your mind, and if God has predestined us to adoption way before everything, before the foundation of the world, before time began, if you, you know, looked into history and picked some people to believe and caused them to believe, how does that mean that there was a time, you know, where we were dead in our trespasses and sins? Shouldn't we be just born into believing, but that's not the reality that Paul describes. According to Paul here, everyone is born in transgressions and sins. Right, I, have a, I have a beautiful, cute, newborn son, and as amazing as he is, he's born into transgressions and sins. By nature, he pursues things that he wants rather than things that other people want. By nature, he does not pursue God. By nature, he is spiritually dead and needs some outside intervention in order to be spiritually made alive. Paul goes on and he, he kind of um, 
he elaborates on this a little bit, and he talks about how we used to follow three different things. We used to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. You may have heard that before. We're not going to look at that in this order. But he says, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world, the ways of this world. The Greek word there for way is the same word for age in chapter 1. A little confusing, I know. It's, it's a weird translation that shows up in a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the English translations that we have. But what Paul's doing here, when he says the ways of this world or the age of this world, he's contrasting that with the age to come. Right? There's going to come a time where Jesus is over all things, where everything is made right, where we all don't struggle with sin, where we live perfectly and fully in God's will. But for now, this age... The age we live in, it's not like that. We live in a world that has a culture that lives against God. In this life, we don't follow the rule of King Jesus who will rule over everything on that last day. We reject God's morality, and we choose to live according to this rebellious age. We allow, by nature, the culture of this world to permeate us. That's just who we are. And the culture of this world, by nature, is one that rejects God. So again, without any outside intervention, without God reaching down to save us, this is just who we are. We are born into our transgressions and sins. We automatically follow the ways of this world. We automatically embrace the culture that rejects God. We also, in addition to following the ways of this world, we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a weird phrase, right? As you guys have been reading Ephesians, hopefully once a week, maybe as we just read it this morning, has that phrase stuck out to you? What does it mean, the ruler of the kingdom of the air? What, what is that? I think most of us just assume because we grew up in church and Ephesians talks about it in a few other places, we just kind of automatically substitute the devil in there. But that's not the language Paul uses. The kingdom of the air, what, what's going on there? If you remember the word ruler, we saw that earlier, right? We looked at the rulers last week, right? There will come a day when Jesus is enthroned above all things, right? At the end of all things, everything's gathered underneath him. And every creature, every being will bow to Jesus. Do you remember, do you remember the phrase Paul used in Ephesians chapter 1? If you have a Bible, you can just look at it. Every ruler, every power every authority. And we talked about last week how that's every spiritual being, how that's every great, um, you know, every ruler of nations, and includes everyone from Julius Caesar to Donald Trump. Everyone will bow. One of these rulers we have here, one of these powers we have here in Ephesians chapter 2. This power rules over the kingdom of the air. Now, that's a, that's a really weird phrase, and we could spend a lot of time on that. Just know that the kingdom of the air is kind of the culture that we breathe in, the culture that surrounds us. There is a being that manipulates the culture that we live in to be against God and to be for his own ways. Just by the way this is worded, I would imagine that there are other beings that that manipulate other areas, but that's, that's what this ruler is. We follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air when we embrace the culture. 
Have you ever wondered how, in a you know, modern-day Christian nature, Christian nation, excuse me, something like the Holocaust can happen? Right? Because if you look at if you look at Germany about you know, 80 years ago, whatever World War II was, if you look at Germany, it was you know, it was a cultured nation. It was a nation that was at least nominally Christian. It was a nation that was full of, you know, good people. But something so dark and so evil and so sinister took root in the midst of all of that. And God was rejected. People were murdered. And the ways of the devil won out. How does that happen? There's a picture um, that sometimes pops up online. I, I should have gotten it for the PowerPoint today. I thought of this illustration a little bit too late. But it's just, you know, some, some Germans during World War II who were working at a concentration camp on their break, having a wonderful time. And they look like they're just, you know, out on a Friday night having a good time. They look like they're just, you know, there's no cares in the world. They're just, you know, doing their jobs as they're supposed to do. How does something so evil, something so pervasively awful, take root in people who don't seem evil, people who may confess Jesus Christ as Lord, people who are cultured, people who are modern? How does that happen? Well, the answer I might suggest to you is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Satan has a way of taking our culture and warping it into his own thing. He has a way of subverting just the swath of human history, just the way things go. So that even though, even though the people around us don't seem that bad, something so evil and something so pervasive can take hold of that. That's why abortion can be legal for as long as it has been. That's why the sexual revolution can take over in the 1960s and really begin to affect the, the overall culture of the United States and the Western world as a whole, and begin to unravel the very foundations of our society. Because the ruler of the kingdom of the air is at work in these ways. He's manipulating the air, manipulating the culture as he sees fit, turning people against God, turning people towards his ways. This is the way that we used to live. We used to follow the ways of the world. We used to follow the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We learned again in chapter 1 that all of the rulers are supposed to submit to Jesus Christ, right? Every knee is going to bow. All of the rulers and authorities are going to be gathered underneath his authority. But what we do naturally, instead of bowing with the ruler of the kingdom of the air, to Jesus Christ. We worship the ruler of the kingdom of the air and we follow his thing instead of submitting with him to Christ. So we have the, we have the world, we have the devil, and we also have the flesh. All of us also, verse number three, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Sometimes the word flesh can be confusing to us. Right? Paul uses that word a lot. And sometimes, because we're not, you know, we're not in the world of Jewish Greek thought that they were in, we can think that Paul's talking about this body right here. Right? We war against the flesh. And he thinks, or sometimes we can think that we're warring against this very body that we have on. But that's that's not the idea that Paul's talking about here. 
When Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about our sinful nature, our natural proclivity to rebelling against God. When Adam and Eve sinned and death came on all the world, every single one of us has a seed of the flesh in ourselves. We have something in us that naturally goes away. It's called the flesh. And it's not talking about our skin or the meat on our bones. It's talking about the inside nature of us that automatically rebels against God. We gratified the cravings of our flesh. We followed its desires and its thoughts. We carried out the desires of the body and mind. Sometimes we can think, you know, Paul corrects himself here. He, maybe not corrects himself, that's the wrong word. He uses the word flesh as if all he's talking about is just the impulses that we have, right? those physical urges, those sexual urges that we have that are sinful. But that's not all Paul's talking about. He throws in the word thoughts here because he knows that in our sinfulness, in our rebellion against him, it's not just something that we do you know, because we get an urge to, but it's also something that we premeditate, something that we think out in our thoughts and in our desires. In both of those things, we gratify our flesh, we gratify our sin nature. It's not something we can just excuse by saying, well, you know, something overcame me and I had to do this sin. It's something that we premeditate, we think out. We follow the ways of the world, we follow the ways of the devil, we follow the ways of our flesh. We follow our will instead of God's will. And if we think about it, if in a moment of quiet contemplation, we consider who we are, we consider the urges that are inside of us, we know that this is true of us. This is not just a theological category that we learn, yes, everyone is sinful. This is not just something that the people out there struggle with and we don't. If I am honest with myself, with my desires, I know that I, at my core, am a sinful human being who, aside from the grace of God, would do nothing but satisfy my own desires, my own sinful thoughts. I would do nothing but follow the ways of this world and the devil who manipulates that culture. That is who I am. And if all of us are honest with who we are, we will find the same thing. The word for this is total depravity. Each one of us are completely against God unless he intervenes in our life. This is who we are. We were all dead in our transgressions and our sins. Because of this, because we are spiritually dead, because we pursue our own desires, we are deserving of wrath. Verse number three, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Other, other versions that you might be using, uh, the NIV doesn't have this word, uh, but other versions might use the word children in there. That's what the Greek has, children of wrath. And that, once again, contrasts with adoption. Right? There is a people, according to Ephesians 1, who have been called out of their former ways of life, adopted into God's family, and who receive all of the benefits of God. But there are people who remain children of wrath people who remain sons of disobedience. 
people who stay in their sins. And instead of receiving the grace of God, they receive the full wrath of God. That is the end of our sins. And sometimes in our modern culture, that idea of God's wrath can be offensive to us, right? We don't like to think about how God pours out his wrath on sin. But let me, let me encourage you to think of it this way, right? If I go down to the courthouse, um, well, actually, as I was driving up here, uh, my wife will attest to this, I may have been going a brief amount over the speed limit, uh, or a small amount over the speed limit. It wasn't that bad. I was going like 79 in a 70. Don't hold that against me. I'm going to edit that out of the recording of this. Um, yeah, I was going 79 and 70, and I was you know, driving past a, you know, a police officer. And as I saw him, I kind of slowed down a little bit. And once I passed him, he pulls out behind me, right? And we, we all know that feeling, right? He, praise God, you know, zoomed past me to take up another position further down the road and just kind of left me alone. But let's say, for illustration's sake, that he had pulled me over, and he had given me a ticket for, again, allegedly going 79 in a 70. And I had the ticket, and I wanted to fight, and I had to go down to the Genesee County Courthouse in order to fight that ticket. Because, you know, I have a good record, the judge might dismiss that ticket. He might say, you know what, you're, you showed up, and you have a good record, so we're just going to make this into nothing, and you're not going to get any reports on your license, and have to pray, pay a brief fine or whatever. And he would dismiss that. Is that judge a just judge? Is he abiding correctly by the law? He's not, right? He's, he's dismissing what is good and what is just, and he's giving me a leaner sentence, which for something like a speed limit, a speeding ticket, that's something that we're okay with, right? We embrace that. But what if there's a murderer who goes to his trial at the Genesee County Courthouse? He's killed multiple people. It's not even a crime of passion. He just kills them in cold blood. And he goes up to the judge and the judge says, well, because you fought this, you know, your record before this wasn't that bad. I'm just going to let that slide, and you're free to go. You can just pay a brief little fine and on your way out the door. What would we say about that judge? Is he a good judge or a bad judge? He's a bad judge, right? Because he's just letting people go. You can't just do that if you're going to be a good judge. You've got a murderer walking the streets now who shouldn't be walking the streets. But when we talk about the wrath of God, it's not as though God is just some angry stepfather who's just out to get us for anything. But we, if we are children of disobedience, if we are sons of wrath, if we are deserving of the wrath of God, it's not a judge going over the top. It's a judge giving us our just sentence what we actually deserve. And so if God were just going to let us off scot-free, then he wouldn't be a good judge anymore because we deserve the wrath of God. But praise be to God, there's another way. Verse number four is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had nothing going for us. We followed the ways of this world. We followed the ways of the devil. We had our own thoughts, our own ideas about how life should be lived, and we lived it. Because of that, we deserve the wrath of God, but God did not leave us in our sins. God dramatically intervenes in human history. 
Again, God could have left us to die in our sins. He could have. That would be something okay that a just God does. But God, the God we serve, the God who has created the heavens and the earth, that God is full of love for us. That God is rich in mercy. That God is quick to forgive and slow to anger. So this God, the God who is full of great love for us, intervenes in human history, and he pours out blessings on us. Verse number six, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There's a phrase there that shows up actually three times in that verse that I want us all to notice. Made us alive with Christ. Excuse me, raised us up with Christ. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We as a people are defined by Christ. We are in Christ And so when God looks at us, those who are in Christ, when God looks at his people, he does not see people who are guilty, but he sees people whose sin has been taken care of by Jesus Christ. Christ bore our sins in his own body. And when he looks at us, he sees all of the righteousness of Christ, all of the works of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is applied to us so that even as Christ was raised from the dead, so we are raised from the dead. Spiritually, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we are made alive in Christ, even as Christ was made alive. Not just are we made alive, but we are we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is one of those ideas that we've been looking at throughout the book of Ephesians. This idea of reigning with Christ, receiving an inheritance with Christ. Not only has God forgiven our sins. Not only has he given us Christ's righteousness, but he raises us up with Christ and pours out the richness of his blessing on us in Christ. We receive forgiveness of sins. We receive the good pleasure of God for eternity. We receive full salvation, full redemption, not just forgiveness of sins, but we receive eternal life. We receive life and life more abundantly. Who are the people who receive this? There's a dichotomy here. There's a separation. Some people are children of wrath. Some people are children of God. Some people are dead in their transgressions and sins. Some people are made alive in Christ. What's the difference? What separates those people? According to verse number eight, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. We are saved by grace. And as Mark Cantley could tell you, I know that, he's preached on this here. Grace is God's unmerited favor poured out on us. Unmerited means not deserved. We did not deserve God's wrath or God's blessing. We did deserve God's wrath. We didn't deserve God's beautiful amazing riches poured out on us. But God has poured it out on us just the same. He has given us his grace. He has pulled us from death to life. 
We don't get to boast in anything that we have done. It is purely God who has brought us from death to life. It is purely his grace. It's not anything that we contribute to our salvation. We don't bring anything to the table. It is purely by the grace of God. Even though we deserve wrath, God poured out his grace on us. God's riches at Christ's expense. Because of what Christ has done, God pours out his riches on us. Grace. It's by grace and it's through faith. So again, not all are saved. Not all are brought from death to life. But those who have faith in Jesus Christ, those who trust in his work, are saved. It's only those who trust in his work. This isn't, this isn't a work that we bring to the table. Faith is not something that we do. Faith is just passive confidence in what God has done. We trust God that he will fulfill his promises. We trust God that he will forgive us of our sins. We trust God that he will bring us to eternal life. And because we have faith, God pours out his grace on us. We are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. People of God, we do not bring anything to the table. We do not earn salvation in any way. God's grace is not given to those who attend church every Sunday. God's grace is not given to those who reach a certain threshold in their giving to the church. God's grace is not given to those who just consider themselves, God, consider themselves good people. God's grace is only given to those who trust in Christ. People who don't trust in their good works. People who do not trust in anything that they have done to get them to heaven. People who only trust in the grace of God. This may be an overplayed, uh, overplayed vision and it's probably not going to happen like this. But imagine yourself before the throne of God. And he asks, why should I let you into heaven? A lot of people are going to have a lot of different answers for that, right? Some people will say, well, I went to church every Sunday. No, well, I, well, I did this, well, I was a good person, well, I never killed anyone. That's not good enough. If that's where our trust is, if our trust is in something that we have done in order to earn God's pleasure, then we're completely missing the point, and we are still children of wrath. But if our trust is in Jesus, if we answer, I have nothing to get into heaven, but I just claim the blood of Jesus Christ, I claim his work on the cross, then we are truly made alive if we trust Christ and trust nothing else. It's a gift of God. It's not by any kind of works, lest we should boast. There's no boasting in heaven. When we get to eternity, we can't turn around and say, well, I got here by doing this. Because none of us got there for doing anything. We receive eternity. We receive the grace of God purely by the blood of Christ completely external to anything that we have done. It is only him. It is only his work. But it's not as though our good works are unimportant, as we see in verse number 10. For we are God's handiwork, according to Paul. We are God's work of art, if you will, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us, to do. The picture in my mind is always a sculptor. 
right? You've seen you've seen a sculptor work on like those giant blocks of marble. If you haven't seen that, you've at least seen them at you know Frankenmuth Snowfest with a with a chainsaw carving out whatever they're carving out. But the picture here is of an artist. And when an artist is chiseling something out, he doesn't just work from his mind. He uses a model, right? He's copying off of something in the real world. And he'll usually have maybe someone sitting there. Maybe he's got some sketches of something that he wants to make. But the picture here is God sculpting a sculpture, chipping off marble, making this work of art more and more in the mold of Jesus Christ. That's what we are. God takes us from being children of disobedience. He takes us from being dead in our trespasses and sins. And he says, you are going to be my work of art. And he chips at us and makes us in the mold of Christ Jesus. So that on that day when God's finally done with us, we are fully in Christ. We are fully in his image. We are free from all of our sin, just like Christ. We are fully deserving of God's good graces, just like Jesus Christ. He makes us into new people. And because God is making us in the mold of Jesus Christ, we are going to do good works. God's at work in our lives. God's work in our lives is not just, you know, when we were saved. It's not just, you know, oh, we prayed a prayer and now you're saved. You've got your get out of hell free card and you're totally good for the rest of your life. No, that's not the idea. When we are saved, God brings us from death to life and we are his workmanship. We are his work of art, his handiwork from then on. God is making us in the mold of Jesus Christ. He's making us free from sin. And if we are truly in Christ, if we are truly made alive, we will see ourselves do more and more good works. Not as though we have to earn our salvation at all, but just because we are being made more and more into the image of God. Even the good works that we have to do are not our own, but they come from Jesus Christ. The picture here in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2 is that of two paths. There's a path that we used to walk on. We used to walk in the ways of this world. But for those of us who are in Christ, we walk in that path. We go out and we do the works that God has prepared us to do. One of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture, stories in the Old Testament, really, is that of Mephibosheth. You guys know the story of Mephibosheth? It's a really hard thing to say, and I've practiced this. His name is Mephibosheth. It's, yeah, it's long and complicated. Anyway, Mephibosheth was King Saul's grandson. In the Old Testament, there were kings of Israel. This is about a thousand years before Jesus lived. Uh, and Saul was the king of Israel. But Saul didn't please God, and so God raised up King David from a different dynasty, a different line. And after Saul's death, uh, Saul and his son were killed in battle. David became king over Israel. Now, it was common in those days, it still is common in some circles, that whenever there's a new regime in town, a new dynasty, you go through and you kind of clean up the mess from your predecessor, right? You, you, know, you didn't want anyone popping up years later and saying, hey, I'm the rightful king of Israel. You didn't want any of that. So it was common for you know, a new king to snuff out the old regime, put everyone to death. Uh, that, was, that was normal. Mephibosheth was part of the previous king's family. Mephibosheth was, um, he was crippled, actually. Uh, throughout the hubbub and the you know, transfer of power, 
he was dropped, he didn't have the use of his legs. And so, so there's this son or grandson of the king who goes from being you know, royalty to someone who's out in the out fleeing for his life. And he doesn't have the means to provide for himself at all anyway. You know, there wasn't welfare in those days. There wasn't, you know, any good government programs for, you know, how to, you know, get crutches and go on with your life. He was just, if you were, if you were crippled, if you were lame, you were just out of luck and you had to completely rely on someone else. But when David found out that Saul had a grandson left, David didn't reach out in wrath or anger. He didn't do what the custom of the day was to do and go out and snuff out Mephibosheth's life. He adopted Mephibosheth. He said, Mephibosheth, you are going to come, and instead of begging for food, instead of fleeing from your life, you're going to come and eat at my table. You're going to become part of my court, and I'm going to bless you with every single blessing that there is to have. That's what God has done for us. Maybe Mephibosheth didn't deserve death, but certainly with the culture of the day, that's what he expected was coming to him. But when God forgives us of our sins, when he raises us up in Christ Jesus, he's doing the same thing that David did to Mephibosheth. He's overlooking the rights that he had to put him to death. He's adopting him, bringing him into his family, but not just sparing his life. He's blessing him and pouring out all of his goodness on him. That is what God has done to us. We didn't deserve any of this. We deserve death. We deserve God's wrath poured out on us. But God has raised us up because of his great mercy and given us his grace. For me, one of the most terrifying passages of Scripture uh, is found in the Gospels. And the picture is, once again, of you know, people before the throne of God. And this is, this is a story that came from Jesus. These people come before the throne of God, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, wait, 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 just, just hold on a second. You say you never knew me, but Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we done all of these great works in your name? Every time I read that passage, every time I think of that passage, it always